Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 383 and my conversation with percussionist, performer, band leader, and member of the Percussive Arts Society and its diversity committee, Blair Helsing. Let's get right to it. This is the first time I've gotten the chance to chat with Blair, and I'm glad he was up for the interview. I had been aware of Blair Helsing for a bit, mostly because he was a name listed as part of the PAS Diversity Alliance, which we talk about in this conversation, but also because he'd reached out to me to help out with a PAS Hall of Fame nomination, something I hope I'll get to discuss here at a later time. In any case, making that connection meant that I could ask if he'd be up for being on the show, so here we are. Blair's been involved in the percussion world in the primary role of performer and enthusiast for a long time. He's been based in the California Bay Area for many years in his primary profession as an IT specialist for various organizations. Additionally, he's been a band leader for many years, most recently with Echo Beach Jazz and for many other outfits over the years. A longtime percussion enthusiast, he's also been a member of PAS for many decades and continues to serve in various capacities there. He also has his own podcast, North Beach Now, that he has hosted for a while. In this interview, we'll discuss his performing years, his years in IT and working during the boom-bust periods of internet commerce, along with a whole lot about his favorite bands, favorite drummers, favorite movies, and so much more. One last note, on my end of the recording, there was a bit of a balance issue between our voices that I didn't fully catch until I was editing this podcast. I've worked to remedy that, but if something sounds a bit off volume-wise, it's probably that. All right, let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on January 8th, 2024. And it begins right now. All right. So, Blair, give me a summation of uh, your percussion, your music responsibilities, anything uh, music related that is part of your life at this point. Well, I get asked uh, when people know I'm a musician, I get asked a question a lot. Oh, do you play guitar? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I don't. I'm a percussionist. Um, And if it goes any farther, I generally say I'm a drummer. Oftentimes, I get the opportunity to open the door and talk about the fact that I play mallets and a lot of hand percussion. Uh, I've been in a lot of different musical environments over the past 50 years, actually. If I get into the weeds a little bit on it, I uh, am a percussionist who is now more of an electronic percussionist in many ways. The last four years, I've had a lot of studio time in my basement, and uh, I've been teaching myself Studio One and uh, how to make percussion tracks in a DAW, Um, and uh, that's been a lot of fun. I'm also a band leader, and I've led a jazz band here in the Bay Area since 1991, which is Kind of an interesting story as to how that came about too, but uh, we can get into that in a bit. So these days I'm um, a multifaceted percussionist and enthusiast and a longtime member of Percussive Arts Society. Um, I've had a number of roles there. Currently I'm serving on the Diversity Alliance, 
I'm the marketing and branding contact for the Diversity Alliance. And I've been a member of the DA since it was formed in 2017. And it's been a great experience. Awesome. Well, let's get to first then your band leader responsibilities. How did that begin? Um, what was the reason you, you wanted to do that or decided to do that, et cetera? I began drumming in uh, college. Uh, I had a drum pad in high school. It, I still mm -hmm. have it. But I wasn't a drummer. I just had a drum pad and thought, oh, this is really cool. And maybe later in my life, I can make something out of this. When I got to college, I graduated to overturned trash cans uh, and was in a couple of bands with friends before I had a drum set. Got a drum set during college and joined my first working band uh, in 1977, playing a lot of country rock, which was very popular in bars at that time, Eagles, Doobie Brothers, etc. And um, got restless after a couple of years, moved from San Jose to San Francisco with the intention of joining bands, which I immediately did, and played original music for about four years. Um, had in the mid 80s kind of a quiet period and then in the late 80s joined some other cover bands uh, playing bars mainly um, had a good time uh, four sets a night uh, you end up going home sweaty and happy but after about four years I was getting bored with playing other people's music and actually being in the back of the band I went to PASIC 1990 in Philadelphia, and I had been a PAS member for about six years or so. Uh, to backtrack a little bit, I saw an ad in Modern Drummer for PAS in 1984 and joined PAS in 1984. So, you know, I'd been reading percussive notes and um, gone to a couple of PASICs. Anyway, um, 1990 comes around, went to PASIC in uh, Philadelphia. And my goal in that convention was to investigate percussion ensembles. I was getting curious about that and saw that as maybe an entry point to get out from behind the drums and perform in a different way. And uh, it was a great learning experience. Uh, one session, I went to a performance of a John Cage piece. I sat a couple of rows behind John Cage watching him seeing his music performed with a huge smile on his face. Uh, that made a lasting impression on me for sure. And um, I happened to have in my percussion collection, a xylo rimba made by Deegan about a hundred years ago. That was once the property of Celso Hurtado. Uh, the Hurtado brothers Royal Marimba band was inducted into the PAS hall of fame two months ago. Uh, that was an exciting event for me because I have something of a family tie to the Hurtado brothers. Long story short, my stepfather's mother dated briefly uh, Mr. Celso Hurtado when he lived in the Bay Area. Celso gifted my stepfather's mother a xylorimba, which eventually I inherited. It's sitting across the studio from me right now. Anyway, Having this uh, percussion keyboard instrument in my possession 
gave me the ability to act on my interest in percussion ensemble. And in 1991, after going to PASIC 90, I formed this group Echo Beach, which I've been the leader of now for 32 years. So um, we've evolved in many ways. Uh, we spent a lot of years as kind of a classic jazz quartet of bass, drums, vibraphone, and guitar. And as I mentioned earlier, we're currently going through a phase of composing and uh, spending a lot of time in the studio recording, getting ready to get out and play gigs again this year, and expecting to do a hybrid of uh, gigs as a duo using a laptop and backing tracks, and then also playing just acoustically with a four-piece uh, from time to time. So it's an exciting period. It's been a great, exciting uh 33, 32 years uh, of leading this band. And in parallel to that, I've had an IT career. So it's been a part-time thing, but pretty much every week I've had some sort of musical activity going on. You mentioned kind of the, the more jazz basis, but were there any groups when you formed it or over the years that you've either modeled or you've kind of seen as your the genre that you tend to play with this group? Yeah. Yeah, um, really good question. So way before uh, I went to that PASIC in Philly, I heard an album by this group called Maboom. Um, this oh. is a group that was put together, try to hold, this cover's not, and I know uh, people can't see this. But right, right. but yeah, I see Max Roach, Ray Brooks, John Chambers, Omar Clay, Ray Mantilla. Warren Smith, Freddie Waits, Kenyatta, Abdur Rahman, and Fred King. It's really a super group. I heard this record about the time it came out, in around 1980. And again, it made a huge impression on me. Um, I knew of Max Roach. I once saw his quartet. I greatly admired him, along with Art Blakey. So I heard this, and... Um, I describe this record as jazz music it or dance music. It's really, um, it's fun. It's, um, has a great depth to it. Uh, they do monk, they do a lot of originals. Anyway, um, when I started Echo Beach, I intentionally brought a couple of these Maboom songs into the group and we performed those for many, many years and, and it was terrific and they were well received. So they were a big in, in influence on what the band did. After a few years as a percussion ensemble, people moved away. Um, you know, bands are always changing. And uh, had a pause and decided it would be great to have a guitar player in the group. And shortly after, my current partner, who's now been with me for 20 years uh, in Echo Beach, John Lojudice, joined. We auditioned bassists and drummers and went out as a quartet and played a lot of standards primarily and had a had a really good time with that. And and now we're in our third phase of combining electronics and live stuff. So what what have been the ways that the group has adjusted, I guess pandemic wise is what you're alluding to, right? Well, for sure. Um just had an opportunity there to try out some new things and uh it's been really fun and we were in a pause anyway starting around 2017 so um had in mind 
I want to get the band going again and just have this opportunity to really try new, exciting, previously unexplored areas to uh, reconstitute the band along with John. And uh, it's been very fun. Are you still doing other uh, performing aside from the group? Yeah, a couple years ago, some friends who I had been playing with on a, in a Thursday night band uh, in a map store of all places, uh, shout out to the guitars out there. Um, we changed into performing out in parks during COVID uh, mm. so we could bring some live music out to the outdoors. And uh, we were a rock band. Uh, we played Bowie and Rolling Stones and a whole bunch of different stuff. Um, and eventually that turned into a subgroup where I was the drummer and we uh, played for about a year. So two years ago, I was in a rock band again, uh, playing covers. It, it's something I guess I'll keep returning to because it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Tell me, give me a little bit about what it's like being a band leader. What are some of the responsibilities, the any trip tips of the trade, things you figured out being in that position? Yeah, it's changed a lot over the years. Everything was by phone when I started this and uh, the yellow pages. So <laughs> uh, where's the Chamber of Commerce in this city 10 miles away that I want to play in? Uh, if they have a festival, how do I reach the festival organizers? You really had to hunt for information back in the early days. And um, now everything is by email and, and social media. But um, the fundamental responsibilities are really around um, forming the material, forming the set list, uh, calling rehearsals, booking the gigs, making sure everyone gets paid, uh, looking after the, the um, you know, the way the acoustics are working when we arrive and do the load in and uh, do the sound check and making sure everyone's comfortable and ready to play. Um, and of course, fundamentally, the first thing to do as a band leader is to choose wisely in the people you work with. And um, I've been blessed with so many great people to play with uh, from the beginning, um, from my very first band. It's just, they've taught me so much. Uh, I've been able to work with some extremely talented, accomplished people and learn so much from them. So as, as much as anything, being the band leader is, is a way to meet new people and learn from their expertise and uh, enjoy their company. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of, uh, I guess you'd say blocking and tackling um, to generate the work, uh, generate the set list, and uh, making sure everyone's ready to play. And it's fun um, these days doing social media work. Uh, I, I do enjoy that and um, get to do a lot of creative stuff to put out new videos and such. And uh, that's a good development in the way that I do this job. Is it uh, scarier at all? Is, is there anything that's changed because of the primary mode that you used to have to make these connections was a telephone versus social media or email? No, um, I, I would say not because uh, as soon as you make contact with somebody, uh, you know, you are um, 
getting into the depth of what their needs are, um, explaining your background. Uh, it, it, in that regard, once you make the initial contact, it's pretty much similar to the way that it was over the years. Um, the, uh, I guess the, the big change, though, is um, it's a more competitive field due to the fact that everyone's using the same tools and it's harder to get attention. Yeah. Uh, that's just the way it goes. You know, what, what can you do? Uh, go against the tide. But here in San Francisco and here in the Bay Area, I, I should point out the fact that since COVID began, year by year, there are more and more playing opportunities. There's been a recognition in San Francisco in particular that um, supporting the arts by city government and by funding of uh, foundations, et cetera, has a positive benefit to the economy, to the vitality of the city, uh, et cetera. And so for that reason, and a number of other reasons, uh, among them restaurants realize that having live music brings people in, uh, I've seen more, I've lived in this area for decades and I've seen more playing opportunities come up in the last two years than were going on pre-pandemic. Uh, I think there's more respect for live music than there had been. Well, let's talk about your work with uh, the Diversity Alliance. What inspired you to get involved and to get involved in the specific uh, subcommittee that you're working with? I've held a number of roles in PAS. I was California chapter president in the early 2000s. I was um, committee chair of the technology committee for a couple of years, um, instituted something called Tech Day during PASIC um, about 10 years ago. And uh, those went on for a couple of years there in Indianapolis uh, as sort of a parallel track to the convention. Um, I've just loved the work uh, and the people and the mission of the society from day one. Um, back in 2017, I was no longer um, on the, uh, I was on the committee, but I was no longer chair of technology committee. And uh, I heard about the Diversity Alliance it was being started by Dr. Heather Sloan. Yeah. And Heather had actually been a vice president appointed by me in the California chapter years and years before that. So I knew her. She had moved out of California. And I thought, if Heather's involved in this, this is something I'd like to look into. And I've also, in my own experience, seen the, uh, the way that performing artists are highlighted or given opportunities or not over the decades. So this looked like something that maybe I could make a contribution to. And um, at that very first meeting in 2017, uh, met people who, uh, and the room was packed. There were more than 50 people who showed up for this meeting and people got to state what their interests were and what their expertise was. So I met uh, David Levine, who is involved with Hit Like a Girl, and we became the marketing and branding contacts uh, for the Alliance, which I felt was a good sweet spot. It, much more expertise on David's side than on mine, but <laughs> I figured I can at least help him out uh, with something. Uh, I can type, you know? Um, <laughs> so uh, that's how I got involved in the DA. I've continued in the marketing and branding area, done some social media content development, and. Uh, do, just do whatever I can um, 
to uh, to help out and be at the booth during PASIC and meet people and tell them about the DA and what we do and why we exist and where we see things going. So uh, it's it's been fun, and I think it's an important part of what PAS does. Aside from it being, you know, I'm part of the marketing. What what is what do you see as kind of the what you do specific to the Diversity Alliance? Well, it just whatever needs doing, uh, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Like I'll hear from Elizabeth, who currently heads the alliance, that we need people to staff the booth at PASIC. You know, we need pictures taken. Last year, a couple of my colleagues on the DA and I in, in marketing and branding uh, put on a little seminar about um, how to market yourself as a percussionist on social media. And people came to that meeting who had much more expertise and were much more of a presence on social media than I am or that uh, my colleagues were and had some great tips. And um, this would be something that we'll probably repeat in the future. Uh, take advantage of people who are out there doing something really well and sharing, finding a way to set up an opportunity for them to share their knowledge. Uh, that was That was really fun. So again, that was just a one-off, but something we'd probably repeat in the future and saw some good benefit from it. So just, you know, whatever's needed, some typing, some uh, sitting in a booth and having conversations, it's all good. Now, you mentioned at the beginning that you, your either main gig or one of your main things is, uh, is in IT. Is that right? Yeah, I, uh, I got my degree in, in broadcasting and uh, print journalism and, uh, after college, my first job was a technical writer job with a defense contractor. They hired a federal me. job or just a, a... No, just a company that, that did a lot of uh, interesting stuff for the government. And uh, satellite <laughs> tracking, satellite tracking systems and... That's, uh, sorry, that, that was a... I like the vagueness of that. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd be editing manuals and, you know, right. didn't... I, they just had to have good grammar and syntax, but aside from what they that what they actually meant, I usually didn't understand. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, but that was my introduction to computers, and mm -hmm. I had to be able to write and edit material that would be clear to a user of these computer systems. So, you know, I, I guess I absorbed something by osmosis, and it was interesting. So. Um, eventually became, when I moved to San Francisco, became a temp doing word processing work and kept learning more and more about computers. So that turned into 43 years of working in IT as a project manager primarily. Uh, that's how I always describe my job during all those 43 years and retired in 2021 from our city government. So I was actually working directly for our government here in San Francisco uh, when I retired as a project manager, and it was great. Because you had done that for as long as you had, I feel like I know the answer to this, but I'll ask you anyway about what's been some of the ways that the technology has changed and you've kind of seen and dealt with it in real time, you know, over right. that, because that's a, there's a, that's an enormous computer overhaul <laughs> yeah. even the concept of computer of of computation in that time is extremely different than when you started 
That's for sure. That's for sure. My my dad worked on the Apollo and the Gemini programs for North American Rockwell. Yeah. And, you know, just recently, I was looking at my phone and thinking the old cliche, which is now an old cliche of looking at my phone and and thinking once again, this has more computing power than the computer that went to the moon in yep. 1969. <laughs> yeah. But um, interesting question, because in 19... Uh, 88, I began working in AI. And oh. There was a technology back going way, way back to the 60s, really called expert systems, where you would take a series of questions and answers and program them into a, uh, an inference engine, as it was called, so that a person sitting at a computer could type in some information and get some advice, quote unquote, <laughs> back from the computer. So I was working in that area from 1988 to 1991. And computing was um, nothing like it is today. Of course, there was no cloud, there was no internet, there was no um, hyperspeed gaming chip available to drive what we know as AI today. Um, very, very, very primitive stuff back in the 80s. But there were a lot of companies formed by venture capital to try to push this technology out into the world. Um, it was one of several cycles of failure to actually make that happen. But what has occurred now is we have basically supercomputers online on the internet that can uh, process knowledge and, you know, as they say, gobble up the entire data set of the internet and uh, be able to spit out um, answers as, as we would think of them be they images or <clears throat> text, what have you. Um, so computing power has gone up by so many factors, thanks to Moore's law, uh, thanks to the internet being part of our lives, um, the whole the whole landscape has changed. Yeah, but it, it's been fun to, um, I was in a team that introduced personal computers into Bank of America in the 80s, and that was a big breakthrough. Uh, the Apple Lisa, we brought the Apple Lisa in in uh, in the mid 80s. And of course, that was a precursor to the Mac. Uh, so it's been fun to watch all this happen and, and feel like, well, at least I'm somewhat on top of how things are changing. And I feel comfortable with learning new things because it's been a requirement of keeping a paycheck. <laughs> well, cool. Well, uh, Blair, let's back up. So where did you grow up? I was born in Chicago, uh, one of the great music towns. Uh, I, I think something got into my blood while I lived there for three years. Um, <laughs> my mother and I moved to St. Paul. And then when I was seven years old, I came to California to live with my dad and uh, grew up in Southern California, went to grammar school in Anaheim, went to high school in Huntington Beach, uh, Orange County, great place to grow up. Uh, going to college at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco going to rock shows at Winterland and, and other venues in the Bay Area and just fell in love with the Bay Area. So I've been in the Bay Area since 1976. At that time, were you going to stuff at the Fillmore West? It wasn't around, uh, I don't think. I went to Winterland a lot, uh, the big ice rink. <laughs> that turned into a music venue um, and uh, had a great time there and, and Berkeley Community Theater and pretty much anywhere these acts would go. So I, I saw a lot of live music in the 70s. 
Do you have any family members in the arts? Yeah, my brother's a filmmaker in Hollywood. Uh, he just completed his second feature film called Martinez, Margaritas, and Murder! Exclamation point. Uh, he's currently looking for distribution for that film. And um, he's been in either filmmaking or television uh, since he graduated from college. What's his name? James Helsing. Okay. Well, how did music and or percussion, aside from the, um, aside from going to shows, how did, uh, how did music enter your life as a player? Well, really first as a listener, in fact, uh, I have a blog on Tumblr that I recently uh, wrote a posting for uh, the 20 albums, which influenced my taste in music. And uh, so I've been giving a lot of thought to that. Um, and it really goes back to um, early childhood. Harry Belafonte's album Calypso mm. came out shortly after I was born, uh, a couple of years after I was born. And my mother had that on in the apartment a lot. So I would say Jamaica uh, Farewell was probably the first song lyric I ever had memorized. Yeah. At a young age. Um, I've already mentioned uh, Max Roach, a big fan of Charlie Watts and Ringo. And I mentioned Art Blakey. Uh, that, you know, it's a long list of drummers, but I just uh, felt an affinity for the drum set. Uh, and and uh, like I said, when I got this drum pad, I thought someday I'm going to make something out of this. And as soon as I sat behind drums, I, I felt completely at home. And uh, I really treasure the fact that, that I have that um, affinity. And uh, I just wanted to keep pursuing it. Like all of us, I am guilty of filling up a room with, you know, uh, <laughs> many instruments, large and small. What age did you get the drum pad? I was 16. Gotcha. And, and then I got my first kit when I was 19. Because it, you kind of came into it a, a bit later, aside from attending shows, what 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 were, what else did you do to kind of fill out your time just to get through life at that point? Taking exams and trying to get through college. Um, you know, I had an interruption in college because I left San Luis Obispo and moved to San Jose. And I took a year off uh, before I applied to San Jose State to finish up. Really, as soon as I lived in the Bay Area, I was in bands. <laughs> so uh, that was that was great. I mean, it's been a full-on side career uh, all these years for me. So rehearsing, uh, listening to a, a lot of records, uh, doing a lot of record shopping, still collecting vinyl uh, this to this time, and reading music magazines and you know absorbing whatever I could. When you first finally get a drum set, are you playing by ear? Are you taking any lessons? How are you kind of getting better? Playing by ear for a couple of years. Uh, and then I was in New York in 1982. I went to the cooperative or, you know, the uh, Drummers Collective back in 1982. I was in New York for a few days. So I took a lesson at Drummers Collective. That was a great, that was an hour well spent. Uh, with Hank Jaramillo. Uh, and then a couple of years after that, there's a music school here in San Francisco called Blue Bear. And uh, I took lessons with Dave Cassini, who um, 
turned into a vibraphone player like I did. And in fact, 20 years later was subbing for me on some gigs as a vibes player <laughs> guy who had been my drum teacher uh, long before that. So I've had a few lessons uh, and every PASIC I'm always looking for new method books uh, to bring into my collection. And, uh, you know, I've worked through syncopation and, and uh, all the usual things that people get started on. When you get to San Jose State, and and now you're in the Bay Area, I, I assume at that point, how are you connecting with other musicians? Well, let's see. How did that happen? I think it was when I joined my first band, it was probably um, a advertiser throwaway sheet thing. Um, there was no Craigslist. Um, I might have put a card up in a music store. Don't recall at that point. There was a significant happening uh, at San Jose State because I went to a percussion ensemble concert uh, led by Anthony Cerrone. And again, this was one of those moments where it planted a seed in me. And this was um, probably 13 or 14 years before uh, I was at the PASIC in Philadelphia. Very intriguing. That was my very first exposure to percussion ensemble music. And it just was very exciting for me. Uh, but back in the 70s, it was pretty much word of mouth in how you met musicians or hanging out at the drum store, you know, that kind of thing. Just uh, person to person. When you saw that percussion ensemble concert, did you know who Sarone was at that point? Or was it just like he just happened to be the one who was conducting the group? And then you found out that he was this... This person who has this really popular book that lots of people study out of. <laughs> yeah, that happened after the fact. I, I knew he was on the faculty and, and headed the percussion program, uh, but I knew nothing else about him or really what I would expect to see and hear when I went to the concert. So it was all a big surprise. When you are starting to play with groups, uh, is what you're playing just dictated by yours or someone else's musicals ideas in terms of what they want to play? How are you, you know, improving? How are you kind of getting used to being in a band? All those things. It's great when you are working with people who have overlapping taste with you in terms of what they like to hear and what they like to perform. And as I mentioned, my partner in Echo Beach, John, um, we have this huge Venn diagram overlap of things we like to do. Uh, and here, last month or a month and a half ago, we went to hear Pat Metheny uh, play a solo show. We're both huge Pat Metheny fans going way, way back. And then uh, about a month ago, we went to hear Bela Fleck and uh, Edgar Meyer and Zakir Hussein. Nice. Uh, again, people we both admire greatly. So we have this great overlap of things. But on the other hand, John also leads uh, an Americana band. And as much as I like a lot of different forms of music, I am not anything of any kind of an expert on Americana. I've learned a lot from John. But, um, you know, that's an area where I have new things to enjoy and learn about from him. But I'm pretty much on the outside of that. Um, so when we're putting a set list together these days, it's really a combination of the originals we've worked up over the past couple of years and 
going back to our list of jazz standards that we played for so many years as a quartet, and uh, we'll reconstitute those uh, as needed when we're playing with other musicians. In the rock bands I've been in, uh, it's pretty pretty much been dictated by two different kinds of uh, how do we pick the songs and how do we play them. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, it was contemporary material. And in my band two years ago, it was uh, material from back in the 70s and 80s and the 90s. So. Um, I just follow the lead of what the guitar players can play and sing in that in that case and do my best to uh, add the right backing. I'm I'm in those situations, I'm an accompanist, uh, accompanist. So many interviews with drummers who I admire have stated in their interviews, we're there to support the music and support the other musicians. Uh, and so that's how I look at my job. There's some spice to put in there for sure as a drummer yeah. uh, into the brew, but uh, primarily you're there to help everyone else feel good and understand the rhythm and set up the guideposts for getting through a song. Uh, that's how I look at it. But as a band leader and as uh, when I'm behind the uh, vibraphone or the mallet cat, uh, that's a whole different thing because I have to make decisions about how prominent is my part where do I solo, uh, that kind of thing. So it, it, different parts of the brain, it's fun. As you've, your kind of life progressed and your, your IT career and everything there progressed, has it been a similar percentage in terms of time, hours that you've been able to devote to playing in bands and and, st and staying up with it or is it kind of moved up and down over the years yeah a lot of up and down um working in it at least in my case uh there are transitions in and out of jobs um sometimes after a decade sometimes after six months mm -hmm. uh back in the early 2000s i was working at startups and sometimes they had a short lifespan <laughs> Yeah, be, particularly at that time. Yes. Uh, <laughs> then I'd be on the bench for a while and uh, spend a lot more time on music. So it's always been up and down. Um, and as I mentioned, during uh, COVID times, uh, I had a lot more time to build my skill sets uh, in uh, recording and uh, explore some new things. So in, in that regard, these last two years have been much more of an open field for me uh, because I still get to rehearse drumming. I still get to rehearse mallet playing. And now I'm spending a lot more time on top of that, composing, arranging, recording. So these last two years have probably been the, the most productive time for me musically that I've ever had. You know, backing to that time in the early 2000s that you were mentioning, I'm just, as someone who's, who's, I've been to, that part of the country a few times here and there over the years, but not, not for very long. What was that like? It just, was it as it seems like a frenzied time, but I have no idea, like from the outside on the inside. <laughs> yeah. What frenzy, was it like? Frenzy is a good description. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Well, San Francisco, if you, you know, just treat it as sort of a closed system, which in some ways it is Yeah. Uh, with occasional, injections of venture capital from the outside. 
gross of oversimplification. But um, yes, going back to when I began my career uh, in the late 70s here, um, banking was the cornerstone. This was a banking hub. Um, there was technology, but it was not very uh, predominant in the economy of San Francisco. And things had been very much unchanged, I would say, uh, for many decades in terms of what the cornerstones of, of the economic engine were in the city. But um, there was a thing called Multimedia Gulch that came up, uh, came into being in the late 80s where um, <laughs> CD-ROM became a thing yeah. for gaming and, and other applications. And mm -hmm. that became um, something of an important industry in the city. And it paved the way for the dot-com era, really. So what happened, it was like um, a, a growing um, sort of organism that, that spread out of multimedia gulch. And by the year 1999, it had taken over much other, many other parts of the city and many other employment opportunities. And that just continued uh, onward here um, until COVID really, because new buildings were built, new companies were formed, old companies like Microsoft and Google and LinkedIn and so on uh, took up huge amounts of office space here in the city. And, uh, you know, getting into restaurants got difficult. Uh, all the things that come along with success um, in terms of congestion and uh, prices and all sorts of other things related to that. So, yeah, I'm, it, it's a cliche that uh, the town is a boom or bust place, and it's probably been that way since the 1840s. Um, yeah. And in some ways, we're used to it. Uh, but it, you know, some of these things, these downturns, are more severe than others. Obviously, um, this one's been a pretty hard one to come back from, and it's still going to take years to come back from it. But so many people who are here, or used to be here, and would like to still be here, really love this place. And uh, I'm one of those people. So uh, I'm actually the president of one of our neighborhood associations. I was elected to that role a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm happy to have that opportunity to contribute and, and help the community stay connected. Uh, and a lot, so many of us feel that way about this city and the whole Bay Area, really. You you kind of laying all this out is is fascinating. I had not uh, even thought about what San Francisco was before. Did not realize it was a banking hub um, prior prior to that. And I it used to be it right isn't anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, and I had completely remember the CD ROM situation when that was going on, and I was in high school and college, and like talking about that and major programs, and then. And like, and then, you know, within a couple of years, it was all done when everything could be on online. What, when it was transitioning from that end of the CD-ROM era into, was that like a, again, you being there, was it just kind of like a wild time when just so much money is coming in and then gone, I guess, or like yeah. businesses trying and then failing um, with a couple making it? Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, the, the height of that for me was really um, 
from the mid 90s through the mid 2000s of uh, the first decade where there was not uh, a robust sort of infrastructure around internet businesses. Yeah. And the, the startups I worked at all had to grow their own data centers, for example. Mm. So there was a huge amount of money being spent on hardware by these teeny little companies, which helped make Sun Microsystems very successful for a number of years until they weren't anymore when things started moving to the cloud and there were other contributing factors to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, just a lot of churn, a lot of expectation that uh, you better appreciate your colleagues today because you may not be working with them next week. Um, and if you can deal with that sort of uncertainty, uh, it you know, new opportunities kept opening up. Um, one thing would close, another thing would open. So we felt, I think, fair to say, uh, people I was working with and I felt like, you know, this is sort of the leading edge of of some things that will reach out into society and will turn out to be a good thing. Obviously, at this point in time, we don't all feel <laughs> as a society that everything that's evolved out of the Internet, et cetera, is a good thing. But on the whole, um, it's become indispensable. So um, I look back at 1996 when I joined my first Internet company and it was called Preview Travel, and we were the first or one of the first online travel booking agencies that eventually was bought by Travelocity. Um, and that had never been done before. So being able to book airplane and hotel, airplane tickets and hotel rooms uh, through a computer was a pretty cool thing. And it's become kind of indispensable at this point in time. So yeah, it was it was new and exciting and stuff that had never been done before. At what point do you get involved in PAS? Well, um, yes, I I saw an ad, uh, and I'm sure it was in Modern Drummer. Um, Modern Drummer in the '80s was the one magazine that I'd read from cover to cover. So I, I was intrigued to think like they're wow there's kind of a club for drummers uh that's global uh they're probably doing some cool stuff so yeah became a member in 1984 went to basic 85 in hollywood at universal uh, city sheraton uh saw stuart copeland uh do a clinic uh first time i saw gary burton perform a uh, big moment for me and um yeah just thought I'm going to keep doing this. So um, I've, I've been to, I guess, more than half of the PASICs since I joined, something like that. And I've made some great, great friends along the way and, um, you know, had some opportunities to get further involved. Working as chapter president for California uh, was really fun because I was able to work with my team and bring days of percussion to parts of California that had never had them before. Uh, Oakland, uh, San Diego, a couple of other spots, uh, Santa Cruz, and um, that was great. Really, really terrific. I Everyone I know who contributes their time uh, to PAS feels they get much more back from it than they put in. When you're talking about those days of percussion, those were like the California day of percussion was in those cities. Is that's, that what you mean? 
Yeah, and and there was a tradition of those um, in Long Beach and uh, in Fresno uh, because of uh, Dave Gerhardt in Long Beach and Matt Darling in Fresno. Uh, but I don't think there'd ever been one in San Diego. Uh, that was really cool. Uh, John Flood helped put that one on. Got to stand next to Stephen Schick while one of his pieces was performed and have a little conversation with Stephen Schick while that was going on. And then Santa Cruz um, is such a music town. Uh, so that was terrific uh, there at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz. So I was I was mentored uh, by the previous chapter president, um, Ken Crawford. And um, there was a good momentum in the chapter to do new things. And uh, we were lucky to be able to get some uh, grant money and uh, get the word out there and, and have these things really take off and still California is a very active chapter. It's such a fascinating state because it has just all these regions. I would assume, and maybe I'm wrong here, but that like it's, it's set up and it's almost as if, if something's going to be in San Diego, well, if something's going to be in Long Beach as it was, then yeah, the, you probably the northern part of the state is just not going to come. I assume, right? And then if it's in Fresno, the opposite. I would like, right? Because I mean, what would be? Is there a good central place, or well, not Fresno, really? Fresno is pretty good, but I saw the need to get some officer representation for Northern California and Southern California, which is how I met Heather Sloan and and asked her to be the Northern California vice president, um, and and so. We needed to spread out. Um, we needed to get into some new corners of the state because it is so big. Also, up at Humboldt, uh, Cal Poly Humboldt, um, Eugene Novotny has had these kinds of activities go on up there too. And then um, in 2018, my friend Patty D, who's a pan player and a cellist, <laughs> good combination. Yeah. Uh, Patty D put on a day of percussion in. Uh, at Cuesta College outside San Luis Obispo. So uh, I I was just a participant in that. I did an electronic percussion session there. Uh, so that drew some people from, from throughout the area, but uh, these are pockets, you know, it's, right. it's a long freeway drive between these places. You know, your own work with electronic percussion and, and, and I guess being, as caught up on digital audio workstations. Yeah, I, do you, do you work with a DAW? Because it's, uh, it's amazing how deep you can go. I, I do mostly with the podcast. I, I just use the, the garage band. Yeah. And I, and I stay with that because that takes care of everything that I need to do sure. here. This particular one is, I think it's, this is the logic is the is like this is like the easy version of logic or something like that at least that that's that's what i've done but i i'm curious what have you so far as you as you've been working through it figured out or started to kind of i guess just get better at when you've been spending as much time on it yeah oh uh, gosh i'm learning new things every day and it's it's so fun um recording techniques mi mixing techniques uh, waveform manipulation techniques, mastering. Let's see, what am I currently working on? Well, 
uh, I've done a couple of things in the last month where I have audio and turn it into MIDI. Mm. And there are a lot of advantages to switching uh, an audio waveform into MIDI because you can manipulate it in so many different ways once it's in MIDI. And I've been doing a lot of uh, composing using that technique. And I'll keep exploring that uh, endlessly because it, it offers so many opportunities. The recording I've been doing uh, with John, my partner uh, in Echo Beach, has been a combination of uh, direct input recording of his guitars with um, miking amps uh, and mixing those signals. Um, that's been really interesting. With the Mallet Cat, I've got the, and I also have uh, an electronic drum kit, uh, an Alesis Surge drum kit. And with both of those, I have the option of recording them as MIDI or recording them as audio, and I've done both. And uh, depending on how much time I have and what the needs are of the thing I'm trying to put together in Studio One, uh, I'll use either the MIDI input or the audio input for that and very different outcomes there. Uh, so, and then Studio One just has so much depth. You can use it as kind of a plain vanilla recording device uh, or you can get deep into it and, and uh, piece by piece, you know, thanks to YouTube and uh, some other uh, learning resources, I'm getting better at it. But um, I still use Audacity. In fact, <laughs> I'm also a podcaster. Uh, I make a podcast about our North Beach neighborhood here in San Francisco. And I started out doing that podcast using Audacity. Um, and I still find it very useful for, you know, some simple tasks to uh, create some output from Studio One. At the university here, we we use that audacity for um, oral skills assignments. So that's how I've gotten better acquainted with that. And the same thing, it's it's one of those that works on all platforms, and it's the kind of the simplest way I think to to work it's, and effective. It's right? And, yeah, I learned about it at a PASIC. I had never heard of it, and mm -hmm. um, there was a session on tools for the percussionist and someone brought up audacity and I immediately downloaded that. Blair, I finish out with a segment called random ask questions. Okay. All right. First question, um, an issue in, uh, percussion performance uh, that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts. Well, I don't get blisters anymore. Uh, thankfully, uh, you know, the the thing one thing that I'm working on right now is <clears throat> my posture at the instrument. Not it's not only because I'm going to be 70 this year; it's the fact that that is so key uh, as a percussionist or any musician. Uh, the way that it affects your breathing, the way that it affects your muscle fatigue, the way it affects how you interact with the instrument. And a couple years ago, when I was playing in the rock band as a drummer. I've spent a lot more uh, mental cycles in rehearsal and playing, thinking about my uh, orientation to the instrument and and my posture. Yeah. And I'm finding I'm doing the same thing uh, playing the mallet cat now and trying to improve. So um, there are some great books on the subject. Uh, uh, I can't recall any titles at the moment, but 
they're they're on my bookshelf and and I'm spending more time studying the the physiology of how I play um, because I, I thankfully have not had injuries from playing and I know many people who have um, and it's something that actually percussive art society invests uh, information gathering and and health and wellness is a big part of the mission. So uh, I'm trying to avoid having problems and I'm also trying to become a better player you know, by having more attention to my posture. Did you notice things change as you got older and, and were things starting to get out of whack that you needed to really focus on it? Not, not so much getting out of whack, but, um, you know, it's, it takes more time to get back into the, um, getting the machine running properly. I haven't been drumming for months. It takes some time to get back into the flexibility and, and the feel, uh, for yeah. example. So, if, you know, just in recognition of, um, I'm not doing some activities as much as I used to, or just maybe they take more time because I'm older, but that, you know, that's, that's sort of the extent of it. As much as anything, I'm trying to avoid future problems, but mainly um, trying to be a better player. Do you do anything specific or do you have, do you, uh, I don't know, endorse is not, maybe not the right word, but is there a, a, a stool or a throne that you're like, this has actually made a lot of difference or an adjustment to it that has really helped you? No, I can't say that I have. Uh, I'm sitting actually on my rock and sock right now. Oh, nice. Which, which I've had forever. Um, I've, I've wondered about the thrones with the backrest, but I've, ne I have, I've never felt like, oh, that's something I need or something I want. If I were still playing four sets a night in a bar, I would probably look at that, though. All right, well, let's, we'll get to some other questions here. Has anyone, not necessarily percussion-related, but has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Uh, no, not that I'm aware of. That's too bad. <laughs> Yeah, come on. <laughs> come on, friends. Yeah. <laughs> give, it, give it a shot. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a great funny. question, though. What is your biggest kitchen mess up? Oh, I have those every day. Oh. Um, I, I'm not a very good cook. And I'm married to a wonderful cook. My wife, Sharon, is really just... Uh, out of this world in her abilities in the kitchen. So I'm just the lumbering animal in there. Um, my biggest kitchen mess up. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I've burned my share of things on the stove. And um, I don't attempt anything that I can't make. Like I, if, if you need some frozen tamales put in the steamer, oh yeah, I, I'm all about that. I don't go much beyond that because I could mess up easily. <laughs> and then you'd be hungry and then it, you know, just be a bad situation. Right. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. What is the most impractical item of clothing you own? <laughs> I have a pair of leather pants. Oh, that they're, no, they're not Jim Morrison leather pants. Sure. They're, uh, they're kind of suede colored that I have had probably 15 years, maybe 20 years. 
and I've never worn them in public. <laughs> Why do you have them? Were they a gift? Uh, no, they weren't. I, I selected them myself. I guess I thought someday these will be called for on some stage somewhere. It just hasn't happened. <laughs> you await the call. <laughs> I await the call. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, all right. Next question. What was your worst job growing up? Uh, for a summer, I worked in a commercial laundry. I would not recommend working in a commercial laundry to anybody <laughs> because the things you see and smell, you really don't want to. <laughs> and your feet are wet all day. So, see, I don't even know because I've never seen, I've probably well, never been in you're one. You're working with these huge machines that when you take a huge load of hotel bed sheets out of the washer, there's water dripping everywhere. Uh, and if you're wearing tennis shoes in the like I did in the early weeks, you know you you your feet suffer from being wet all day. Uh, then I graduated to boots for the rest of that job. Thankfully, at the end of that summer, I got a job as a record store clerk, and I never looked back. <laughs> oh, that's that's wild. I, I I agree with you that I I would also not like to know what <laughs> was in hotel sheets. Uh, <laughs> No. <laughs> Blair, what is a great movie and what is a terrible movie? Okay. Um, last night, after a couple of years of curiosity, I watched Baby Driver. And Baby Driver, as many of your listeners know, is really centered around music. The, mu the movie edits are cut to the music. Yeah. Uh, the, the songs fit the scenes, etc. Um, I, I was somewhat disappointed. I, it, it's not a terrible movie by any means, and I'd probably watch it again, but um, I didn't appreciate the violence, actually. Sure. Um, I'd, I'd call it a better-than-mediocre movie, for sure. And Edgar yeah. Wright is a very talented guy. A, a great movie by Edgar Wright is the Sparks documentary, because Sparks was worthy of having their story told. One of the greatest rock bands, most... <laughs> clever uh unique rock bands in history of rock music and edgar did a great job on the sparks documentary so i think that's a great film uh the wrecking crew is a great film those are a couple i i've just recently got i, I haven't seen it yet but i the the dvd of the sparks documentary just came into my library so um, public library. So I'm I'm Good. planning to watch that very soon. Uh, this, so I'm looking forward to that. For sure. Um, and the the Sparks one, uh, excuse me, the Wrecking Crew one is really really good. Um, yes. Because you you know it's there's th there's that one there's um, Standing in the Shadows of Motown, yes. which is about about the uh, Funk Brothers. Yes. The Muscle Shoals has a documentary. Um, it's just really good to see. Those are great because you because they've been a lot of those have been like the, those a lot of the players and the main people are happen to still be around when they've been made. Yeah. So you really get like an inside, you know, scene as to what's going on in a lot of those. Yeah, that that was a great vision that Denny Tedesco had to capture those folks while they were still around. The Glenn Campbell movie comes to mind. I yeah. should mention Hal Blaine because yes. for Hal Blaine, I might not be talking to you. 
growing up with LA radio in the 60s, didn't know it at the time, but so much of what I was hearing had Hal Blaine on the drums, and he was so influential to me along with millions of other people, for sure. Lucky to grow up with, with that kind of music and that kind of radio programming in L.A. when I did. Yeah, wasn't he the most recorded drummer at some point? Like, well, wasn't that his moniker? Yes, it, it, certain people have said that. And it's probably <laughs> true, but but there are people who say J.R. Robinson is. Yeah, um, I think that's right. It kind of seems to float around. And who's really keeping track? Right. <laughs> there is a Facebook page for Hal Blaine um, that I highly recommend mm. that uh, might support the idea, but um, I'm not sure. You know, going back to Baby Driver, I, I, I also don't think it's is I don't think it's Edgar Wright's best movie. I, I did quite enjoy it, but your this his soundtracks are always really really cool. He did the um was it Last Night in Soho? I think is also his movie uh, from a couple no. of years ago. Same like same thing. It, it's a very it's I, I don't know if you've seen that one, no. but that one's very particular to a time to like sixties London. And he got like he do, he clearly does a ton of research on the music of the time period, uh, or he just has an enormously interesting ear, and he really puts it to use in a lot of his movies. It's 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 pretty pretty impressive. I'll I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good. One. It's a it's another one. It goes very weird, but it's but it's very it's it's a very interesting movie. Well, what's a favorite book? Uh, the Drummer's Path. Okay. Is is by Sule Greg Wilson, um, definitely a favorite for a long time. I'm currently reading a, a book about John Cage called Where the Heart Beats. Uh, picked it up last year. I think it was published in the last two years. And it's this intersection of John Cage as a Buddhist with how he became the composer that he did. Mm -hmm. Beautifully told. Um, and when I took it up to the counter to pay for it at City Lights Books, the clerk at the register said, uh, this tells this story really, really well. Uh, and, you know, I've read other things about John Cage, but uh, I'm really enjoying this book. I'm partway through it. Blair, do you have a sports fandom? No. I, I root for the Giants when they get to the World Series. That doesn't happen too often. I will say when the Cubs got to the series, because I was born in Chicago, yeah. I got pretty excited. That's, a, that's as far as it goes. I, I, can't, I, I was dorm mates with Mike Kruko at Cal Poly, who went on to be a sportscaster for the Giants. That's my big sports anecdote for you. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, you did have a pretty impressive run in the early 2010s. That was like, I know, it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you kept the Dodgers from winning, which I'm sure you enjoyed quite a lot. I have to say I did. <laughs> so these things come up once in a while. Yeah. And then I forget about sports for five years. <laughs> I mean, you, whether you care or not, you have a really good football team again this year. So. Oh, thanks for telling me that I didn't really know. <laughs> My friends would tell you, ask me music trivia from the 60s and I'll yes. go on for an hour. Sports, I'm just not that into. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Next question. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Africa. Anywhere in particular there? Probably Northern Africa, but um, there's a lot to explore there. Going back to your uh, music questions, do you have a go-to karaoke song? <laughs> I, I, I've been to karaoke once. I was working in Tokyo, and my last night there, I was taken out by some of the client employees to a karaoke bar. And I got through my terrible rendition of Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton and concluded I should never do this again. <laughs> it seems like you've stuck to that decision. <laughs> never since. I might give it a go again. I'm, I'm finding myself singing spontaneously uh, now and again these days. So I, I might give karaoke another try. I can see the appeal of it for sure. Yeah. Maybe there's a, a Mamas and the Papas song you're like dying to do or something like that. That could happen. <laughs> that I will say just a random aside on I, I'm not sure why I've if for some reason I've got um, go where you want to go, do where what you want to do in my head. I don't know why. I love their version of dedicated to the one I love. That's one of oh, my yeah. favorite covers. So oh. it just it's it's really bonkers, but it's great. <laughs> so good. So good. Yes. Um, well, since you spent most of the, well, we'll go back to, I don't know. Do you go to Chicago often? Yeah. Um, my wife and I have been back several times. We spent part of Christmas there a couple years ago. It was great. Awesome. We, and we were there a year and a half ago. Well, since it is, it is technically your, your hometown. Is there a place that when you visit, you have to go eat? Oh, that, well, restaurants come and go uh, there. We went to uh, the Jose Andres restaurant there uh, oh. a year and a half ago. Uh, that was Haleo, I think it is. Uh, that was excellent. And um, I'd go back there for sure. Uh, yeah, we've tried different places. We we started going there together in the 90s. So um, we've tried out a lot of different stuff. I try to always hit some record stores. Mm. Uh, well, there's one in the loop, Re Reckless Records um, in the loop that uh, I've been into a couple times and, and found some good stuff. When people, I mean, there's so many options in the Bay Area, but when people come there, where are you like, and they ask you for food recommendations, where do you send them? Come to North Beach. Please come to North Beach and have some uh, Italian food. Uh, we have a global award-winning pizza in North Beach and a lot of other things to choose from. Uh, great breakfast options. Uh, uh, for breakfast, a personal favorite of my wife and me is called Tartine. It's a bakery that also serves food through the day. Uh, and the short answer is come to North Beach. Go into any restaurant in North Beach and you'll have a good time and have some great food. But someone asks, if you run into someone and uh, they, you meet them and they say, I like this, whatever this is, and it could be on the more obscure side. And it would immediately for you just go, okay, we're good. What's that for you? I've had a lot of moments in my life like that. I don't think there are any, probably any bad Beatle fans. Um, and so many of my friends and I are Beatle fans. Mm. Um, but in particular, 
if someone says they like and appreciate the skill of Ringo Starr, yeah, that's a savvy person. <laughs> now, Ringo's been maligned from time to time over the years, like, yeah. oh, so simple and right. He doesn't play solos, blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear any of that. Yeah. An extremely skilled percussionist is Ringo Starr. I just got to see Ringo six months ago for the first time with his all-star band. And what a treat. So yeah, if someone likes Ringo's playing, then we're probably going to get along great. Okay. So let's, let's, let's take, let's continue on this. I, I mean, cause I, I know what you're talking about. What are the, what are the, like you give them the bullet points of like, and they're like, I don't really care for Ringo and they're, but, and you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> Here's, here are the reasons go. Hi hat work in particular, um, great hi-hat work, figuring out when to open it, when to close it, uh, when to get away from it. Um, His funny backward fills, as Ringo calls them, um, that fit the song so perfectly. Listen to how consistent he plays those fills and come together. Mm, Yeah. Uh, He plays that fill over and over through the song, and I don't think that was looped. I think Ringo played that each time in that song. And that that's one of the greatest fills in the Beatle catalog. Yeah. Um, it's the gro- like it the fill is the groove basically. Or it's like one of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and it fits with what Paul is playing just so perfectly. So throughout yeah. their time as recording artists, um he would play to suit the song completely. If it was a ballad, um, he might just be playing tambourine. If it's if they're rocking out, um, he's rocking out with them. So, you know, the stuff he played always fit the song, and and that's what they needed, and that's what made them so popular with so many people because the songs were not only composed uh, lyrically and harmonically very beautifully, but um, you know when they came on the radio, the rhythm was so infectious that they became hits and they're still beloved today. He was willing to sit around and drink tea while the other three argued. If you look at Peter Jackson's movie, Ringo's just sitting there a whole bunch of the movie. Yet he was willing to put in the time and be ready to play when they were ready to play. So he's got the personality and he's got the chops and that's what you need to be a successful drummer. You know, one of the things that's kind of interesting with, well, there's, there's a couple things. One about Ringo is that, First of all, there was no such thing as a rock drummer when he started. That didn't, that that job didn't exist. No one knew what that meant. Um, so, like, every, we're ascribing things to him that were not available. For most of the gigs when the Beatles were around, the sound system was such garbage that he couldn't do anything else except play two and four. Like, that's all they could. Maybe they could hear that. Yeah, that Shea Stadium. What what a nightmare. Well, and candlestick too, like candlestick too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I think he I think he drew on. Uh, I know he he loves cozy coal, but uh, I don't really hear so much cozy coal in his playing. But you know, I think he drew on um, maybe Earl Palmer. Yeah. Um, Little Richard's drummer, perhaps, because you know the Beatles love Little Richard. But yeah, the template the way that he executed it did not exist. 
And the way yeah. that Lennon and McCartney were writing songs and George Harrison were writing songs and the way George Martin helped them arrange them, he had to invent a lot of stuff. Right. Or he had to figure out how do I fit into this arrangement effectively uh, yeah. in a way that drummers had not had to do previously. This was not Sandy Nelson pounding out 4-4 on the tom-toms. This was sophisticated music that appealed to a broad audience and had a lot of sophisticated ideas behind them. Um, so he stepped up for sure and invented a lot of cool stuff. You're right about the, the, I mean, he always had this kind of, I don't know, bemusement, um, or just like you said, he, he had the right attitude where he, he, he just didn't take it. He was like, I mean, this is cool. Like, it, it seems like that was his attitude. Yeah, it's fine. You know, I'm a yeah, beetle. Sure. You know, I mean, he enjoyed the money, like may sometimes a little too much, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he knew what he knew what he was in and he appreciated it. Yeah. He had been hospitalized uh, as a child for many months. And I, I think he burst out of the hospital with with a love for music and life that, you know, made him appreciate every day. Yeah. And certainly once the the jet ride started for them around 1962. Yeah. Um, he had been in show business long enough to know that uh, this was something very special. Although, as I recall, they kind of had to twist his arm to get him out of Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Like, <laughs> yeah. that was a popular band with a steady gig. And, yeah. you know, he, he hadn't, maybe he had never heard the Beatles before they asked him to join. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, he certainly appreciated it while it lasted. Last couple questions. Strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you? I guess I'd have to say as an audience member instead of as a performer. Okay. I went to the final Sex Pistols concert in San Francisco before they reformed. Okay. Um, and in terms of a strange and bizarre and uh, rather um, dark experience, being in an audience that I would put that one at the top of my personal list as to being in the audience and feeling creeped out. <laughs> um, where, where, so where was the, where was it? What was, was the venue? And here's okay. Francisco. And, and the crowd that that show drew like every, you know, reject from society. I don't know any other way to put it who felt like their voice had been heard through the music of the Sex Pistols seemed to be in the uh, arena that night. It, it had the typical, oh yeah, well, the audience is supposed to spit at the band, et cetera, et cetera, and throw uh -huh. balls and, you know, all that stuff. But it, it was just a weird vibe and uh, was not too happy to actually be there. <laughs> but I was there. Yeah. Was the, and I, like, since I don't know the venue, was that, like, was that, a, was it a crowd? I, I mean, was it like one level or was it seating or I open floor, open okay. floor, and then a couple of balconies. Um, and then some, uh, some riser seating in the back of the arena. So, uh, it was crowded. I mean, the floor was very crowded and, and I was pretty close to the floor that night. And I had had so many great nights there, um, seeing other bands. That was one of the, that was a couple of years before Winterland closed. I was mm. lucky enough to be there in the final week or final month when Springsteen played there. 
Ooh. Uh, the Grateful Dead actually were the last band to play at Winterland, but uh, I did see Springsteen. One of the many times I've seen Springsteen uh, was at Winterland in 78. Nice. That's good. That's uh, darkness is on the edge of town time. Well, um, yes. And I had been to uh, uh, another show on that tour. Um, probably my favorite show um, of seeing Springsteen. I would say, and my favorite album to this day. Mm. That's a good one. By him. Yeah. 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 Just going back to the Sex Pistols show. Was it clear that they were done? Like, well, the, you know, the closing line from the stage that I was, was Johnny Rotten saying, ever get the feeling you've been cheated, which was kind of like they're, um, we're bowing out now. You know, we really suck or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but it sounded like an exit line to me. Yeah. All right. Last question, Blair. What one piece of art could be music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently? Well, on YouTube, I've probably spent more hours watching Rick Beato mm. videos than any other channel on YouTube. So... Um, Short answer would be Rick Beato's YouTube channel. What are the, some of the better videos that you would recommend? Oh, the the Pat Metheny interview was great. The Keith Jarrett interview um, was really moving. Um, the Sting interview was interesting. Uh, Sting is always an interesting interview, I think. Yeah. And... Um, the song analysis and the music theory uh, that he provides, the breakdowns of song structure and harmonies, um, particularly uh, recently, well, more than recently, more, more like the last couple of years, um, his explanation of chord progressions and harmonic construction in, in songwriting, I, I found to be super interesting and I'm trying to apply uh, as many of those lessons as I can absorb uh, from his videos. So um, there's a lot, there's a lot to take in there, but he has other um, people that he likes to bring onto his channel that I also like to look at uh, Phi Watt world, Tim Pierce um, and, and other people who are involved in different parts of music, particularly guitar. I've been um, a, a huge aficionado of guitar for forever uh, I just find it fascinating uh, what they do. And so many of my favorite recordings are by guitar players. So uh, I find just learning more about guitar to be interesting. Just this morning, I was watching a video by Amy Nolte, who is a performer here in California and also does great um, music analysis and explanation. The video I watched today is a new one by Amy Nolte about uh, her favorite bridges in Beatles songs. Mm. So that was kind of cool. Blair, we are done. Thank you All so right. much. Pete, this was really fun. Thank you for interviewing me. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I I was not aware of, uh, how did I do in my podcasting? Was it, was it okay? Absolutely. Since yeah. you're the, since you're also a podcaster, I need to. Yes. Yeah. Well, great questions and, and great deep diving and I really appreciated that. Thank You're you. very welcome.
such a total blast chatting with Blair on this interview. I look forward to hearing more from him in upcoming years and hopefully meeting him in person very soon. Thanks again and best of luck in all going forward, Blair. As you heard on the podcast, Blair was talking about this particular documentary, which I finally did get to see this week. So this week's rave is the 2021 documentary, The Sparks Brothers, starring Ron and Russell Mayle, the main band members for the cult pop group Sparks, along with a lot of celebrity talking heads, and directed by Edgar Wright, now streaming. As we discussed in this interview, Edgar Wright has been a successful feature film director for a number of years, including films like Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, One Night in Soho, Baby Driver, The World's End, and many more. He is also, if you've watched his movies, very clearly a music nerd. And as this is one of his first forays into feature documentaries, he does a good job in this format. Though I have to admit, it took the film a little while for me to be interested in it. The film covers the careers of Ron and Russell Mayle, the members of Sparks, as they traversed the pop music landscape starting in the late 1960s, mostly in California. I'll be honest here and say that until this documentary came out, I'd never heard of this group. And for a while, I was waiting for the moment when I'd really start to care about them. But then I caught on to it. One of the reasons the Sparks band's story is compelling is the simple fact that they pretty much continued to do their work without stopping or paying attention to popular trends. They made some money, I guess, for what they did, but they built a rabid fan base piece by piece, making weird and funny music with a high degree of craft. In some cases, they were actually a bit ahead of the curve. They did an album with legendary disco producer Giorgio Moroder, maybe one to two years prior to synthesized new wave music taking over the pop charts in early 1980s. But they came to these artistic schedules on their own timeline and bet on themselves. I guess they won. I mean, they have a documentary about it and a lot of famous fans, so there's that. Additionally, by following their own tastes, they created a wild and wide-ranging musical canvas. Every style of pop music is essentially a part of their canon, making them a bit like the weirder version of Queen or an updated version of Frank Zappa. What they do is hard to calculate, but the effort and growth is made clear throughout the documentary. While it is a bit on the long side, if you want to be entertained by a band you may know nothing about, then this is the documentary for you. Check out The Sparks Brothers, streaming now. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and X at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's Perk Pod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then.